listeners, and welcome back to This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, a podcast of the Black and African Diaspora Forum of Monmouth University. I'm Hetty V. Williams, your host. Today on This Week in Black History, Society, and Culture, we have Dr. Anne-Marie Angelo, a senior lecturer in American History in the School of Media, Arts, and Humanities at the University of Sussex in the United Kingdom. Welcome to the show, Dr. Angelo. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Black power and global perspective is an important conversation in the history of the African diaspora. The Black power movement was a global movement in the 60s and 70s. Today, we will discuss the British Black Panther Party and the Black power movement in a global context with Dr. Angelo. First, we will discuss Dr. Angelo's biography, and some thoughts on her approach to understanding Black history and culture from a global perspective. Then we will go into more detail about the British Black Panther Party and her forthcoming book, Black Power on the Move, Migration, Internationalism, and the British and Israeli Black Panthers, scheduled for publication by the University of North Carolina Press this year. So Dr. Angelo, Discuss with us briefly your educational teaching and research uh, interest. Sure. So at the University of Sussex, I am part of the American Studies program in the history department. Um, And in terms of my teaching interests, uh, I teach uh, in African-American history. I teach a course on the history of New Orleans. Um, And I teach a a kind of specialist course that I developed um, called Race Photography Archives that thinks about the history of photography through the lens of um, of racial formations and particularly around um, the work of black photographers um, uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, In terms of a little bit about my educational background, I um, did my undergraduate study at the University of Virginia. I'm originally from Virginia. Uh, and then I um, taught high school in the UK, which is an important part of my research development. Um, and then I did a PhD in history at Duke University. And my research focuses um, on thinking about the African-American freedom struggle in a global context, but also about its, its interactions with other freedom struggles in other parts of the world, uh, particularly in the 20th century. So... Tell us a little bit about the study of African-American history. And even if you want to tell us some, some more or, or in a global t- context, Black history in a global context, but particularly this phrase, Black internationalism. So this is kind of a two-part question. You know, how did you come to study uh, the Black experience globally? And then uh, your thoughts on Black internationalism. Sure. Thank you. So. Um, I, uh, as an undergraduate student, um, studied American studies, um, did a thesis thinking about uh, culture, advertising, and the civil rights movement, and then went to teach high school in the UK after I graduated from college and uh, became really interested in the fact that the students in my classrooms tended to know the kind of classical narrative of the civil rights movement in the United States. Um, And I was, my job was to teach a lot of African-American history to British students, um, as well as American politics and some American literature as well. And in the course of doing that, uh, I would ask my students to kind of teach me the Black history that they knew of their country, um, to teach me Black British history so that I could learn something from them too. And I found that for a lot of students, um, there wasn't much of a response to that question. They didn't really have uh, a whole lot of experience having learned Black British history, um, or they, um, they didn't really understand a lot about the Black presence in Britain that dated back all the way to Roman times. So I became really curious about this um, and wanted to kind of get my head around why it was that that so many people in the UK knew about African-American history and civil rights history, um, the history of slavery um, in the United States, those not being, of course, um, the sole aspects of of African-American history, but those being the ones that seemed most salient to people outside the US. And then why was it that, that 
that they couldn't tell me very much about um, histories of, of Black people and um, the Black presence in their countries. So I then, um, in the course of starting off a PhD, um, was at the UK National Archives uh, one day, and I, I had been looking at kind of diplomatic correspondence between um, Prime Minister Harold Wilson and President Lyndon Johnson around civil rights and Black power. And that was interesting enough and certainly would have been a good topic to, to kind of carry on studying. Um, but I typed in, I then typed in Black Panthers one day into the search engine and I found these arrest files of British Black Panthers. Um, and that was the first that I knew that, that there was a Black Panther movement that had existed in the UK. And this was in 2006 that I came to, to know about it. And of course, people who were involved in that movement and people who had been doing local history work had known that um, for a very long time. Um, and it, it really surprised me then that part of the um, internationalist work really was about connecting the internationalist, Black internationalist dots um, and the relationships that people had already traced um, 50, 60 years ago, and, and of course, much further back than that. So it was about kind of retracing the steps of people who had already done that work um, and just being kind of continually amazed by, um, by their efforts. So it sounds like you're suggesting, at, at least anyway, your students sort of, um, you know, helped in shaping, I guess, the way you look at Black power beyond the U.S. to think about, you know, a broader context for the Black power movement. So tell me, so how would you define this term Black internationalism? Mm -hmm. It seems to be a great focus in um, Black studies right now, African-American studies. Yeah, I think there um I think there are multiple internationalisms at play. In fact, I toyed around for a while with using the plural in the title of my book um, because um, there are there are efforts at relationship building um, that the the British Black Panthers, um, who are the the largest um, focus of study in the book, um, are building. So it means that they're they're kind of thinking of themselves um, and are conscious of their experiences as part of the African diaspora. Um, and that kind of the consciousness about their diasporic identifications is what leads them to build connections, to kind of build what we might call the, the internationalist connections. And this, of course, is not something that happens for the first time in the late 1960s. There are, you know, internationalist connections between um, Black people in Britain and um, in the U.S., but also elsewhere in the diaspora that date back um, to, you know, the 1940s. The, the Manchester Pan-African Congress happens in, in 1945 and prior to that in the, the 20s and 30s as well. Um, so it's about, you know, I think this particular Black internationalist relationship is about a kind of um, a consciousness and a, and, and a very concerted effort to build relationships across borders that also reflects the fact that um, for the people who become British Black Panthers, they themselves had crossed borders in their own lifetimes. So they were migrants who held, held British citizenship, but who moved from colonized countries to the British mainland or, or to the UK. Um, and so in that sense, they already themselves were internationalist in, um, in their experience and in their kind of narratives of their own lives. Um, and so it was kind of a bringing together of those experiences that built a sort of internationalist focus with, within the British Black Panther movement. Yeah, I, I, like, I like that phrase, internationalisms, that you use. I think that's a, a good... Um, way to think about Black internationalism. Because I think that it doesn't necessarily, I think there's just a debate, internal debate in uh, African diaspora studies about how we define Black internationalism and its connection to Black Marxism and whether or not moving across borders and making connections is enough to define the term mm. Black internationalism. Mm. is I think a growing debate. So I, I like the fact that you know, I think you're arguing that there are different iterations 
Yes. You know, over time and space and place. So I think that's a definitely important point to make. Yeah, I think that that's that's reflected in in the U.S. Black Panther Party as well. So um, Huey P. Newton and Eldridge Cleaver both had kind of internationalist viewpoints. Um, you could argue, but they were very different in terms of the, the kind of goals that they were pursuing and the, the kind of practical work that they were doing. Um, so, yeah, I think there are different iterations and, and different ways in which you can be um, internationalist. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. Uh, I was just taking a look at uh, Huey P. Newton's To Die for the People, you know, just uh, looking at it to get ready for this interview and what uh, Newton is talking about. Because I think he comes to his internationalism by way of reading Fanon. And, you know, he's definitely writing about, speaking about, and talking about, you know, a broader movement of Black people. But I think, like you said, by way of Fanon, you know, then the internationals or the Black internationalism that you're finding in, you know, Britain or in the UK is, is different. So tell us a little bit about your current research on um, the British Black Panthers. Sure. So um, the the kind of the project that has emerged from my research is it's a transnational study um, that takes consciously tries to start um, with the pre-movement histories of people who became involved in the British Black Panther movement, as well as the Israeli Black Panther Party. And tries to, first of all, kind of trace um, some commonalities in the histories of Mizrahi Jews who become, uh, who make up the Israeli Black Panther Party. And then um, uh, what we today might sort of refer to as Black and Brown people or Black and Asian people um, in the UK who make up the British Black Panther movement. So I'm not sort of saying that those two groups had um, entirely parallel histories, but that in fact, by kind of thinking about their migration, um, their role as laborers, as workers uh, for um, the, the, the UK and Israel respectively, and thinking about how they get racialized as a labor class, um, we can begin to understand the, the, the Black Panther movement and um, more broadly, Black power as um, both a movement of the African diaspora um, as well as a movement of um, migrants who are colonized people, who are people who had lived um, under experiences mainly with the British Empire, but also um, people coming from the Portuguese and French empires as well. And this, you know, was inspired for me um, by the work of Donna Murch, um, who you know, has written about internal migration within the United States and how that kind of fosters um, the relationships and the experiences of people who who found the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. That book really helped me to think about um, these people as a kind of as groups of um, people who hold citizenship and want the um, at first are, are seeking the rights um, uh, of citizenship. Um, and don't find that that um, that that's their experience, and so then kind of form Black Panther movements um, as as migrant groups, but as groups of citizens as well. Yes, I think that's definitely true, especially in um, Huey P. Newton talking about the internal imperialism in the United States and kind of making that argument that you know they are impacted too by a type of internal imperialism by the U.S against black communities. Um, but I think the difference here is, I think what you're getting at in your research is um, with somebody like Huey P. Newton, it's not a matter of movement and migration per se beyond the U.S. It's, it's internal, mm-hmm. you know, what, to what's happening in uh, the U.S. Tell us about the primary sources. I had a student who loves this topic, but is daunted by doing the research because of the concern for primary sources. So what type of primary sources have you come across in your own research? Sure. So um, I've done a number of oral histories. Um, So I've interviewed um, members of 
um, both movements, particularly a, a number of members of the British Black Panther movement. Um, and that was over a process of, um, you know, a series of years of kind of reaching out to different people and getting connected to additional people. But in addition to that, uh, there are a number of um a handful, I would say, of, of oral histories that include members of um, the British Black Panther movement. There's a, a collection um, called The Heart of the Race, Women's Oral History Collection at the Black Cultural Archive in London. Um, there was a, a group called the Organized Youth Collective, um, who are uh, a photographic and kind of youth community organization in Brixton, South London, who um, put together a fantastic um, exhibition. Um, so these are kind of teenagers from, from um, Brixton who interviewed the members of their community that had been involved in the Black Panther movement and put on a photographic and oral history exhibition um, about seven or eight years ago now. Um, and then um, there are one of the most incredible kind of resources that I've, I've come across is um, the British Black Panthers newspapers. Um, so they maintained a newspaper throughout the entirety of their existence. Um, and in the book, I sort of trace how this goes through um, a few different titles. For the majority of the time, it's called the Black People's News Service. The, the issues of that are scattered. Um, there are some in the Darkest Howe papers at Columbia University, some at the Birmingham Local Archive in the UK, um, some in the National Archives in the UK that come out of um, prosecutions and court files of Black Panther members when, um, who are arrested. And then some have um, kindly been shared with me by um, former members of the movement during interviews. Um, so it's been a kind of process of piece, piecing together um, resources from a number of different places. Um, but what's been really kind of amazing is just seeing that, uh, you know, that the, the, the narrative and the experiences of the people were very much there, despite the fact that the, the British Black Panthers chose very um, conscientiously not to keep many written records. And this was because they uh, they had fears of um, surveillance um, and and arrest. So there are a number of places where you can get um, where you can find copies of different issues of the British Black Panthers newspaper. Um, one is the Darkest Howe papers, uh, which are at Columbia University in New York, um, which is great for um, any U.S. based students um, or scholars who might be interested in this topic. Um, and then in the UK, the Black Cultural Archive holds some of them, the George Padmore Institute in North London, the Birmingham Local Archives um, in the West Midlands, and the National Archives um, hold them within um, court cases that involved um, British Black Panther members uh, who had been arrested. The, the kind of the existence of these files is, is, um, is really helpful uh, as a researcher. And it's important because the British Black Panthers chose not to keep many written records um, because of experiences, um, police trying to shut down the movement um, and very um, warranted fears of surveillance. They were surveilled pretty much from uh, when they first started. Right. Parallels to what happened in the U.S. So let's tell our listeners, because I'm sure some may know a little bit about this history, but I, I would imagine most probably do not know uh, much about the British Black Panthers. Tell us some of the basics, such as uh, the founding of the British Black Panther Party, maybe how and why uh, it was formed. Let's start there. Sure. So, um, the British Black Panther movement was founded in um, the spring of 1968, um, but the year, the summer before that, is really important to um, the history. So, um, in July 1967, Stokely Carmichael uh, starts on an international tour. It's a moment where he kind of um, is 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 still a part of SNCC, but is kind of taking a different direction than a lot of um, SNCC organizers in um, the South. 
And he goes on this international tour. And his first stop is in London. Uh, He speaks at an event called the Dialectics of Liberation Congress. Um, And this is kind of a a sort of leftist uh, congress. It's organized by some left-leaning psychiatrists, um, but also by a number of of leftist um, intellectuals and artists. Um, Angela Davis is also there. um, And she and um, Stokely Carmichael meet with um, members of a couple of nascent Black power organizations. So there was a group called ROS, the Racial Adjustment Action Society, founded by a man called Michael DeFridis, who uh, also went by the alias Michael X, having um, met with Malcolm X um, on his visits to the UK in 1965. And then a man called Obi Agbuna. And uh, Obi Agbuna was one of the founders of the Universal Colored Peoples Association. And he was himself uh, a Biafran uh, Nigerian uh, playwright and author um, who, in 1966, had visited the United States as part of um, a U.S. State Department-sponsored Young African Leaders Tour. So he came across on a, on a State Department-sponsored program to um, ostensibly to, to win young African hearts and minds over to, the, to U.S. democracy in this era of decolonization. Um, but after that tour, he um, himself goes on a personal trip uh, around a lot of the United States. Um, he meets with the Nation of Islam. He meets with members of SNCC's Atlanta Project, which is... Um, a more radical separatist wing um, that has very strong kind of uh, internationalist leanings, some of it cultural interna- cultural nationalism, but also is, is interested in, um, in Black power and in internationalism more broadly. After meeting Stokely Carmichael in 1967, Egbuna um, has this um, desire to form uh, what I call the first iteration of the British Black Panther movement, which was a kind of all-male um, militaristic cadre um, that was a, a revolutionary nationalist movement. Um, and he founds it out of the UCPA, the organization he had been leading. There's a, a split in that group. Um, and he founds this kind of small all-male cadre that call themselves the British Black Panthers. And within the first three months of their founding, um, he and two other key members of the organization are arrested and imprisoned for a leaflet that he had written called What to Do When the Cops Lay Their Hands on a Black Man at Speaker's Corner, which is an iconic kind of public um, speaking area in Hyde Park in London. So Obi Agbuna is imprisoned. Um, He's eventually found um, guilty, um, but released, but he's held in prison um, without trial for several months. And during this time, some members of the movement who were frustrated with what they saw as kind of his his desire for the media spotlight, um, and they had some concerns about whether he was a strong grassroots organizer, they sort of take the movement um, and move it from Notting Hill, where he had founded it, to Brixton in South London um, and build a more grassroots-focused um, d- kind of movement that aspires to be doing a lot of community work within Brixton and South London. And then from 1969 to 1973, a number of chapters get formed um, elsewhere in London, um, in North London, um, and East London, and then also um, Black Power movements that are related or that ally themselves with the Black Panthers kind of start to pro- proliferate outside London. So you see Black Power happening in, in cities of the North, like Liverpool and Manchester and in Cardiff, Wales, and in Nottingham. Um, so it becomes a, a kind of uh, national Black Power movement, but with this this kind of South London British Black Panther movement as its 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 anchor, as well as a number of other Black Power organizations that form. Yeah, that's very fascinating. It sounds as if so. You know, correct me if I'm wrong here. That it starts with Egbuna, who 
would you say he was more an elite in in the sense that at least in terms of educational background versus what's happening in Brixton with the grassroots organizers? Yes. Um, I think that's, I think, I think the kind of the key difference is that he had very strong um, African cultural nationalist leanings. Um, so uh, when he first um, writes a black power manifesto and announces it, um, he announces it to the press um, wearing a dashiki um, and kind of talks about the, the connections between um, African cultural nationalism and black power. Um, whereas a lot of the, the people who are involved in the, the, the Brixton Black Panther movement come from the Caribbean. And they, that there's, there's diversity in that. So there are South Asian members who get involved. There are some other West African people who get involved. Um, but it really is a kind of movement that comes out of the history of Caribbean activism. And as a result, it has a more radical kind of um, socialist uh, focus to it um, than the movement that Agbuna leads. And Agbuna really thinks of this, this movement as a kind of military cadre. And he's, you know, he's wanting to train people for an armed insurrection, um, if necessary, um, against the state. Yeah, I think those are important distinctions, the different forms of Black nationalism, you know, the the cultural nationalists, economic nationalists, who are, I know, within the Black Panther Party in the U.S. are having heated debates about what type of nationalism, right? They're critical. Many of the Black Panthers are critical of cultural nationalism. I think I, I forget, they refer to it as pork chop nationalism. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think that's, um, yeah, that resonates as well in the UK in the sense that, um, that what Agbuna is interested in is important to the kind of small group that he's with. Um, but it, 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 has a very different kind of um, a very different kind of praxis when the movement leaves uh, Notting Hill and, and moves to Brixton. Right. I, I, I definitely think that's an important distinction to make. So you mentioned that many of the Black Panthers in, in the UK are inspired by these visits by Malcolm X and Stokely Carmichael and so on. Can you say a little bit more about were there any sort of more direct relationships between the British Black Panthers and the U.S.-based leaders and chapters of the Black Panther Party? So interestingly, um, you know, one of the reasons why um, I've become so interested in this, this project is that um, there were no kind of formal um, connections in the sense that the, the American Black Panthers, you know, didn't sort of ask Black British people to, to form an international chapter of, of right. the U.S. movement. But interesting and, and interestingly, there were a, a few Black Panthers from the U.S. who um, met with the British Black Panther movement. Um, Connie Matthews is the kind of the most well-known. She is secretary of, um, of the international wing um, and meets with the British Black Panthers on a visit to the U.K. Um, and um, some members of the British Black Panther movement um, have connections to to Angela Davis and her work that, again, kind of goes outside the party framework. The strongest connection, interestingly, is between a man named Tony Suarez, who is a member of the British Black Panthers and then leaves the organization to, to form um, something called the Black Liberation Front in the UK. Um, but he um, writes to a number of people. So he, he, he strikes up a, a kind of correspondence relationship with Robert F. Williams when Williams is in China. Um, and then in terms of Black Panther Party connections, he exchanges a lot of correspondence with Eldridge Cleaver and Don Cox and Kathleen Neal Cleaver, all of whom are in Algiers um, as part of the Black Panther Party's uh, international wing. And another member, Olive Morris, actually um, travels to Algiers um, to meet with them. So there's an interesting kind of connection there that's happening between the most explicitly internationalist part of the Black Panther Party and the British Black Panther members who are individually kind of seeking out those connections. 
so we mentioned this briefly, the um, Steve McQueen's uh, show, Small Axe, and the Mangrove Nine. Tell us, can you tell us a little bit about what happened there? Sure. So um, the Mangrove uh, restaurant in Notting Hill was um, owned by a man named Frank Critchlow, Trinidadian, um, and it had become a really key gathering place for, in particular, the Caribbean community in London. Um, it was known for its fantastic food, um, for being a great social spot, but also um, a space that people could drop into with any kinds of concerns um, about um, life or questions that other elders in the community might be able to answer. So over the period of its existence, the mangrove had experienced a number of raids by police. Um, And uh, in the summer of 1970, this kind of um, really heated up. And that's uh, what we see in the film, The Mangrove, whereby um, the police are just constantly raiding the mangrove restaurant um, on accusations, um, on, on false accusations of drugs possession most, most of the time. And as Althea Jones, who is the leader of this second phase of the British Black Panther movement, points out, Um, She believes very strongly that this is due to the fact that it was an important gathering place um, and a social space for the Black community in London. Um, There aren't many social spaces that are private um, in London for Black people to gather, um, and especially not in significant numbers. Um, And so she has the sense that that's why this is, you know, that's why this is being targeted. And so on the 9th of August, 1970, she and uh, a member of um, a Black activist called Darkus Howe, who later joins the British Black Panthers, um, and a number of other activists organize a march um, to defend the mangrove restaurant called Hands Off the Mangrove. Um, They planned this. um, It was well known that it was going to happen. And of course, the police are there monitoring it, um, and um, a kind of a number of violent altercations break out. Um, the The people who had planned it um, had organized a very kind of clear march route. Um, one of their members, Barbara Beast, was carrying a pig's head to kind of symbolize the fact that this was the result of uh, continuous police um, uh, police uh, surveillance and raids on their restaurant. And in the altercation that breaks out, a number of people um, get arrested uh, and nine of those people um, eventually go to trial. And uh, the, the trial is held at the Old Bailey, which is the highest court in the UK. Um, so it's the court that has always has sort of news media presence every single day, no matter what Um, trial is taking place. Um, And interestingly, two two members, Darkus Howe and Althea Jones, um, elect to defend themselves in the courtroom. Um, Darkus Howe had trained as a barrister. Althea Jones had no formal legal training at that point. She was a, a, a biochemistry PhD student at the University of London. And in the course of that trial, which lasts 71 days, um, they work assiduously alongside um, a, a British, uh, a white British lawyer, um, to demonstrate um, the fact that these raids were the result of um, police brutality um, and of uh, disrespect uh, and invasion of um, Black private space. It ends up that the judge in the case recognizes publicly for the first time that there is racism in the Met Police. Um, in particular, um, Darkus Howe and Althea Jones had both um, been involved in questioning a few police who were very well-known um, racist police within the community. And the the police kind of aren't able to um, really backtrack um, and get out of the the seriously um, the serious questioning that's that is um, being asked of them. So uh, it's considered a, a kind of watershed in British history, although it 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 
it needs to be taught that way um, and people need to know it more um, to understand just how important it is. Um, because up until that point, the British state had never really acknowledged um, any racism among its ranks. Um, and although it's it's minor, because the judge actually says there's evidence of um, racism on both sides, which is a very familiar phrase to all of us right now, um, mm-hmm. it's still significant um, because it, it, it shows that um, a judge is recognizing that the police are not um, completely innocent in their efforts. Right. It goes on the record. And I, in, with this case, I see a lot of parallels between in, in terms of the involvement of women. And, and, and I think even in the case of um, Kathleen Cleaver, who eventually, you know, goes to law school, gets her JD, that, you know, these are people who are well-educated, some of whom are in PhD programs. And a lot of parallels, I think, to Angela Davis's own life and um, trajectory. So there are a lot of parallels there, I see, with this particular incident. Tell us a little bit more about the role that women play in the uh, British Black Panther Party. Yeah, so um, women play a really significant role in this kind of second iteration of the movement, which is the the longer iteration from 1969 to to 73. Um, So Althea Jones... I don't think that she would have she would necessarily recognize herself as the leader of the movement, um, but every single person that I've interviewed calls her that, um, and that tells us a lot about um, the respect that people in the movement have and and had for her. Um, Linton Kwesi Johnson, who becomes um, a, a famous reggae poet or uh, dub poet, um, says that she is still the most extraordinary leader and organizer that um, he has ever met. Um, So she is respected for the fact that um, she is very principled um, and very much believes in doing the work of serving grassroots communities. Um, And even now I've read some interviews that members of the the Brixton Youth Collective did with her. she turns questions uh, that are asked about her into opportunities to ask them to explore and to engage with their history and what they want to accomplish um, within their communities. Um, so she's really a kind of incredible figure. She's she's slightly elusive in the archives, but that's, I think, part of her praxis is not necessarily about leaving an individual mark, um, but about what what work can be done always for the community. And then in addition to that, um, a number of women within uh, the movement um, are involved as as members um, alongside male members. Um, They have talked to me about the fact that there was definitely some sexism within the movement um, in terms of kind of whose voices were heard in decision making. But at the same time, um, there is a sense of it being a a more egalitarian, um, kind of movement. Um, and out of it, a group of women formed a a Brixton women's collective. Um, and this was a a kind of women's only organization in South London that really kind of flourishes in the late 1970s into the 1980s. Um, and a few of the founding members of that come out of the British Black Panther movement. Um, and certainly part of their interest in doing this, Beverly Bryan is, is one of them. She's a, a teacher from Jamaica, is because they felt that women's concerns were being raised within the movement, but that they needed greater focus um, and they needed a, a, a space in which this was the sole focus. But there is a, a, a women's group within the British Black Panther movement. And, um, and Beverly Bryan is also really important in um, helping start the supplementary schools movement. Um, so the British Black Panthers start putting on schools within the community, um, that are designed to supplement the, um, subpar education that, um, children in, um, that Black children are receiving. Um, Black children are at this point, um, in Britain are, are often classified as what's called educationally subnormal. Um, and this kind of moniker stays with them and affects whether they're being steered into certain kinds of jobs or into further education. And so one of the things that the Panthers help do is to create supplementary schools where students can um, both gain greater skills, but also be taught aspects of um, 
of African diasporic history, literature, and culture that is completely absent from um, the British national curriculum. And then in addition to that, a group is formed called the Brixton Black Women's Group. Um, And Beverly Bryan is one of the the founding members of that group, along with Olive Morris um, and some other women in the British Black Panther movement. And they go on to become a very powerful um, and important organization for Black women in South London um, through the 1970s and uh, early 1980s. That sounds like a, a, a separate book topic in itself. Yes. <laughs> at the women. It sounds like the women also were more active longer. It's a, you're saying through the 1980s. So it seems as if the grassroots activism of the women continued on. Yes, definitely. So in this last section, let's talk a little bit more about the internationalist politics of the British Black Panther Party. Because I know your book also looks at the Black Panther Party in Israel. So talk to us a little bit about their internationalist politics beyond the UK. Sure. So the British Black Panthers, I'll start with, um, were really heavily connected um, to the struggles of African diasporic people, but also of, of, of colonized people um, in other parts of the world. Um, and I call this a kind of, they had what I call a kind of grassroots internationalism. Um, and what I mean by that is that they were kind of looking for ways to understand what um, people in other parts of the world who had been colonized or who were still colonized were experiencing. Um, and, they recognized that one of their one of the the, the 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 key things that they were struggling against was the the lived experience of empire, um, meaning they they talked about and they read about how the British Empire had divided people um, in an effort to um, to prevent alliances across these national borders that um, empires helped to create um, in the in the nineteenth century, and so. They really conscientiously um, wanted to work beyond that um, and to kind of pick up the spaces in between um, those divisions and 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 create connections there. So um, in their newspaper, for example, um, they covered news from all over the world, um, uh, in particular the colonized um, world or the global south, um, and then. They also um, allied themselves um, with other movements. So they participated in events to support um, the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Um, they participated in events to help South Asian um, people. Um, they developed a kind of um, internationalist ethos. Um, they, they supported the Basque movement of Spain. Um, so any kind of nationalist movement um, that had a kind of similar experience of having been colonized um, or imperialized and of trying to build a national identity that, that, that wasn't about the borders that had been created for people, but about a national identity that came from people was something that the British Black Panthers really kind of um, tried to ally themselves with and show support for. And they recognized that it was it was really a, a fight that was stronger if it was waged with um, with the experiences of, of imperialized people together. So they fought together against the 1971 immigration bill, for example, um, that was trying to essentially end all migration to the UK, even those people from the British Commonwealth who had been recognized as citizens in the 1948 Nationality Act. And then in Israel, um, the kind of uh, internationalist praxis there, it, it has a has a very um, different um, style, I would say. Um, so these are Jews from um, the Middle East uh, and North Africa who migrate many as children um, to the UK to Israel in the early 1950s and are promised Israeli citizenship upon arrival um, by virtue of being part of the Jewish community outside Israel um, or Jewish communities. Um, and then in the course of their growing up years, um, in particular in a small neighborhood in Jerusalem called Muzrara, 
um, which is a neighborhood on the border between East and West Jerusalem that kind of serves as a no man's land where they had placed Middle Eastern and North African um, people from Middle Eastern and North African uh, Jewish communities to live. Um, that the state had placed them there. Um, they begin to discover that that they share experiences across their national identities. So they aren't um, only Moroccan or Iraqi or um, Egyptian or Yemeni, um, but in fact, they were experiencing similar forms of discrimination. Um, and so out of this, that in and of itself is a kind of internationalist um, mindset because they're coming in with different, speaking different dialects of Arabic and having different cultural traditions. Um, and they sort of build this identity um, as Mizrahi, meaning Jews from the East. Um, and then they, they, part of that is actually believing and, and, and coming to learn about the experiences of African-Americans um, through the news, through community centers where they're, um, they're kind of uh, practicing Hebrew and reading um, and beginning to experience, uh, beginning to discuss the fact that um, they're being racialized. They're being called black as a slur. They're uh, being told, you know, they're experiencing being second-class citizens um, in terms of their education and access to employment and, and healthcare. And then they they sort of read about the American Black Panthers and they, in a very organic way, they decide to start calling themselves that, <laughs> um, believing that their history is, is, is in some ways in parallel to that of African-Americans. Um, and of course, we could immediately identify a number of differences in those histories. Um, but if we, if we take, you know, what they see as parallel, as important, um, we see that they're talking about the experiences of, of being imperialized and colonized um, and of being told that they are citizens and, and having citizenship rights and not being able to exercise them in the same way that, that white European Jews are. Um, and again, that's the kind of, it's internationalist. It's it's beyond the African diaspora, which I think is really interesting, um, and it's beyond the English language. Um, and so there's a lot of interesting translations and mistranslations and misperceptions that happen, um, but also a lot of desire to connect with American Jews. And so they talk about the fact that they are um, that one of the reasons why they decide to call themselves Black Panthers is that they know that Golda Meir, the prime minister, had lived in the U.S. for a long time um, and that she knew who the American Black Panthers were and that there was this kind of perception um, of anti-Semitism around the American Black Panthers. Um, and Huey P. Newton, I think, very much distances the party from this. Um, but nonetheless, there is a perception of it. And there were certainly some anti-Semitic comments made by members of the Black Panther Party at different times. Um, and they say that they choose this because they want to point out that what they're experiencing is not only a form of racism, but it's a form of anti-Semitism from Jews to other Jews um, to treat other Jews differently than yourself. Um, they see that as a form of anti-Semitism. So they take on this identity to kind of shock the conscience of Israel. Um, and then they also uh, gain the attention of members of the American Jewish Congress who travel to Israel and meet with them. Um, there's discussion of the Israeli Black Panthers touring the United States. And this is something that uh, the Israeli government very much does not want to see happen because um, at this point, the Israeli government is relying really heavily on financial contributions from American Jews um, to help the nascent state um, solidify. Um, and so they don't want there to be any kind of stories getting out of, of racism and of division. Um, Israel's meant to be this, this, you know, glorious melting pot for all Jewish people. So there's a kind of effort to connect there. And then, of course, there's um, a question about Palestinians and their relationship there. And there are a number of Israeli Black Panthers who... Um, seek to form kind of individual alliances. So they meet with members of the PLO. Um, they uh, consider themselves one of the first organizations in Israel to, um, to endorse the PLO, um, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Um, but no official alliance is ever formed. And that's because there are some members of the movement um, that are concerned about um, 
the ways in which they might be quickly closed down if they made that a vocal alliance, but also about needing to serve their own community um, and uh, and the ways in which they might not be able to do that um, if they they kind of fracture their movement. Um, so uh, on the other hand, you know, some look back and, and think now that perhaps things they could have been even more powerful if they've been able to forge that alliance. Um, and another kind of key factor that I think it's important to keep in, in mind is the, the, the kind of complete securitization and militarization of Israel's borders, which make it very difficult for people to even physically meet um, and to form relationships um, because of how heavily militarized um, Israel's borders are, particularly after the 1967 war. This is, I think, a, an important dimension to your work. It's hopefully our audience, because I think I'm thinking uh, some people might, uh, this might make them think of the black Hebrew, Hebrew Israelites, mm-hmm. which are a completely different, you know, movement in the late 19th century down to the present. But it's interesting that you have this organically emerging in Israel, these um, black Panthers and who are identifying with that, that name. Yes. Very interesting. So to conclude here, uh, what when is when will the book be published? We're all waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting for this book. Thank I you. heard about it like a year ago or something. And I said, I can't, I said, I cannot wait to hear um, to read this book. That's really hard. It's just is really heartening to, um, especially in this pandemic time, to like be able to interact with the people who might want to read it. So thank you so much for saying that and for this opportunity, because it, it makes it a lot more um, real and brings you back to like, to why you do this work. Um, It's not just to sit alone behind a desk all the time. Um, But um, the book is, is due to come out in, in late June from UNC press and it's, um, it's available for 40% off uh, on their website at the moment. So even, even though it's not out for a few more months, could be a good time. I want to thank you for being a guest on this week in Black History Society and Culture. And uh, we look forward to reading your forthcoming book. Thank you so much, Dr. Williams. This has been, been really nice and I appreciate it. You're very welcome.